Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast Insight segment, where we investigate major topics that are shaping biotechnology today. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm your host, Joe Raelli. Our guests today are Drs. Jack Hoppin and John Babbage, co-founders of Ratio Therapeutics. Ratio Therapeutics is a Boston-based pharmaceutical company with the mission to accelerate the development of best-in-class targeted radiotherapeutics for the treatment of cancers. By employing a suite of innovative technologies, the company is developing innovative and proprietary pharmacokinetics modulation technology for the construction of improved therapeutic agents and transforming oncology treatment paradigms. Ratio has recently secured more than $20 million in seed funding and established partnerships with two major pharmaceutical companies, Bayer and Lantheus for its proprietary research and development platforms, Trillium and Macropa. Ratio is moving at light speed towards submission of its first IND application expected this year. Jack Hoppin is the chairman and CEO of Ratio Therapeutics. Prior to joining Ratio, Jack was the president of Conica Minolta Precision Medicine and co-founded Invicro and Emit Imaging. Jack is a leader in the molecular imaging research and drug development community, and brings more than 15 years of experience in design, development, and commercialization of preclinical instrumentation, analytical software, and imaging-based assays. He earned his PhD in applied math from the University of Arizona. John Babich is the president and chief scientific officer of Ratio. Prior to founding Ratio, he co-founded two companies, Molecular Insight Pharmaceuticals, where he served as chairman and CEO, and Noria Therapeutics, a radiotherapy company developing targeted therapeutic and imaging radiopharmaceuticals for use in oncology, which was acquired by Bayer. He has served as assistant professor of radiology at Harvard Medical School and professor and chief of radiopharmaceutical sciences at Weill Cornell Medical College. John has published more than 300 research articles and has 10,000 plus citations in the radiopharmaceutical, radiotherapy, and radiolabel imaging areas, and he earned his PhD from the University of London. Jack and John, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Joe. So you guys have such deep background in the radiopharmaceutical space. It's it's incredible. And you both founded companies in this space. Uh, I'm wondering what was the driver of coming together and, and co-founding Ratio Therapeutics after you've each you know had independent success in the space? Well, I, I'll jump in. John, you take that away. Yeah, so... Um... As you mentioned, I had founded a, a company, Molecular Insight, where where we did a lot of uh, very, very interesting work in in the space of imaging, but also targeted radiotherapeutics, and uh, in particular in the space of PSMA targeted therapeutics and imaging for prostate cancer. Um, in our our last go around with Noria Therapeutics, which you also mentioned, uh, we were working on the technology out of my laboratory at Cornell Medical College, and really focused on trying to enhance the delivery of radiation to the tumor. So just to, just let me step back a second. So in, in regards to radiation therapy in general, right, which is used in approximately half of all cancer patients, you know, using external beam radiotherapy, one has to um, identify the location of the cancer and then a plan for that the treatment of that cancer is made so that you, you basically are shooting beams of, of, of radiation at various angles, all of which crisscross at, at the site of the tumor. And so it's a it's a mechanical approach to targeted radiotherapeutics, I mean to radiotherapeutics. Um, our approach really is is to take a 
radioactive drug and inject it into a patient so that it can go everywhere the tumor is, right? So typically, external beam radiotherapy is used for localized disease, but we're looking to use radiation for systemically or disseminated disease, right, in multiple components throughout the body. And, and when you inject a drug into, the, into a patient, you obviously lose control over the, the planning of that, right? So it's very, very interesting to use imaging where you, you put everything on a topographical map and then you, you come at it from different angles and you fix the patient and you, and you shoot multiple beams through so they crisscross in a, in a, in a particular space. But how do you do that? How do you, how do you control where the, where the radiation goes when you're injecting a drug? And this is the, the, the question that sort of was the head scratcher. Um, there's a lot of ways to think about that. You can say, well, I have a target. I'm going to make a very high affinity ligand to bind that target. Uh, but it turns out that the pharmacokinetics is driven by other factors other than affinity for a target, right? Because that works in a test tube. Like we know, antibodies work in a test tube. But once you inject those molecules, whatever they might be, they could be a small molecule, they could be a peptide, you then have inherent in the chemical structure of that, but the physical chemical properties of that compound charge, the felicity, size, shape, will drive where that molecule goes. And so it makes it, it makes it a, it, a sort of the challenge of how do you optimize tumor delivery? How do you, how do you control the distribution of, of that radioactive substance once you inject it? And so we're, we're uh, coming up with an idea that what, why don't we build a, a scaffold where the PK can be controlled through the addition of a, a particular chemical uh, group on a on a scaffold, so we have we come up with a, a trifunctional scaffold. It has a uh, tumor target protein binding domain, so that's the the, the recognition. Side. It has a chelator for for carrying radioactive metals, which is typical in, in therapy, and then it has a another tail on it, which is a uh, another chemical entity that can bind albumin. And why albumin? Well, albumin's you know it, it's found in very high concentrations in the blood. It has different binding pockets. You know, all your lipids are shifted around. If you take ibuprofen, it binds to that. Lots of drugs bind on and off, and they help solubilize uh, a lot of things that get carried around your body. So, if you can hitchhike on albumin, you can sort of contain the radioactivity to the blood component, and then if you can modulate how long you hitchhike, you could think about it coming on and off at different stops, right? So as we made the, a few of these molecules, it, it became clear to me that this would be amenable to a, a mathematical approach, right? How do we, how do we do, use modeling, mathematical modeling to sort of optimize or at least understand what's happening? So, you know, I, I've known Jack, uh, in, you know, parallel lives sort of thing in, in, in the field. And uh, I gave him a call. I said, "Listen, I, I think I have an interesting problem, which I think you might find fun to work on. And could we could we talk about how we would do that?" And I presented to him and his team um, what we had done so far. And I said, I, "I think these we can dial in the PK, keeping everything the same. We can dial in the albumin affinity, and that's changing the PK rather dramatically." So that's uh, how we got reacquainted with each other, and how we got. And then I obviously dragged him into being much, much more involved, but I'll, I'll shift it over to Jack. But that's, that's, that's how we sort of got in, into the concept of working together on a way to really identify an understanding and prove our understanding of how to deliver these therapeutics. 
Yeah, that, that's some really interesting pharmacology. And just Jack, before you, you start, I, I wanted to highlight again that your background is in applied math. And I think that underlies some interesting etymology in the name ratiotherapeutics, <laughs> where, where math is sort of meeting medicine. So, so in addition to telling us your side of this founder story, could, could you talk about the role of math and medicine and, and how you navigated towards therapeutics um, from, from where you started? Sure. Yes. So um, my background is, has always been in uh, imaging, medical imaging, uh, math solving medical physics problems um and really kind of the journey that led us together started with uh after i was a postdoc developing moved to hungary i was in germany for my postdoc moved to hungary to build at a kind of a interesting gamma camera company in, in budapest a what became the market leading micro spect ct which is not a big market to to image radioactive drugs in in, in mice and rats but uh, actually, Johns Hopkins had two of them. I spent a lot of time at Hopkins uh, uh, working with the teams there. Um, and early on, we left that, that that hardware business was good, but started a company to kind of work on the the software and the imaging problems that were created and, and made possible with that instrument, which was primarily radio labeling drugs and seeing where they where they distributed. So um, we met up with a Hopkins grad, uh, Kelly Orcutt, and uh, another team, two people who are now ratio, Kelly Orcutt and uh, Jacob Heschman were both postdocs at the time at Harvard Medical School, and uh, started working on physiological-based pharmacokinetic modeling to really predict and optim understand the, the pharmacokinetics of radio-label drugs, mostly in rodents at the time. And so by way of history, we ended up building a, a somewhat large, Invicro is a pretty big, still is a pretty big company, 400 people do lots of imaging studies. And so had radio labeled and imaged many hundreds of drugs and um, was always interested in targeted radiotherapy. You know, in, instead of putting on a positron emitter or a gamma emitter to image the distribution, as John nicely uh, described, putting on a beta or alpha and turning and, 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 and turning to a, a targeted therapeutic. And, um, when uh, when he came came along, it was like, yeah, we we were and part of its timing too. You know, I, I think John's a pioneer in this space, and in some sense, was almost too early with molecular insight pharmaceuticals. The the market was almost he was a pioneer, but the market was not really ready. And and it's a different time now with Novartis, Bayer, and major players having drugs in the market and people appreciating what is not a not what is not a new concept, but really has shown its value and is being adopted. Uh, clinically in clinical practice, um, many people were coming to study targeted, you know, radio label drugs. Either they didn't have to be targeted radiotherapies, like which studying their biodistribution. And when John came in with the Trillium platform, it was like a match made in heaven. I said, yeah, "This is what we've always been looking for. Like this, you get it. You know, this is a this is a PK problem. How can we optimize PK?" And we had the tools and the the experience, and it was just kind of an instant. Yeah, yeah, this could work. And and I think it's been a that was in 2017 or 18. Um, so I started working a bit with John in his capacity of Noria, and uh, we you know sold sold that company to Buyer, and, and Ratio was born simultaneous to to kind of lead uh, the efforts of the first um, first in human studies. We to to your opening. Uh, uh, parlance, we, we actually did file the first IND in, uh, last month or two months ago now. Um, so it's been a, it's been, it's been a roller coaster out the gate of effort. 
and uh, it's an exciting time. Um, and it's been a pleasant surprise to see in just the first 14 months. We, John had done a lot of work at Cornell uh, on the platform. And it, of course, as the company founded, it, we've collected a ton of data in the last 14 months. And it's really very quantitative how you can tune um, the platform to, to modify the PK. It's, I think it's delivered even better than expected. Um, so we have two other programs in development and it, uh, we're three for three on hits with the platform. Um, and it's, it's a, it's an exciting moment. So, yeah, that's great. Sometimes it really is all, all about the timing. Uh, yeah. I, uh, yeah, because I don't like John. You know what I mean? He's not a he's not a pleasant guy. You know what I mean? He's, he's mildly intelligent, knows a few things, but he stumbled upon this idea. It's good. So we'll uh, a, a good you know co-founder. I mean? Yeah. John, I, I just had he's one more <laughs> I had one more question for you about background, sort of to that um that point about finding uh the this you know niche in molecular insight pharma. Maybe the timing wasn't totally right then. After leaving Molecular Insight, you went back to run a lab at Cornell, and right. uh, in in the podcast, we like to talk about the transition of uh, you know grad students out of academia and into uh, other roles. You chose to instead of you know keep the ball rolling at that moment and you know found a new company. You you decided to go back and and run a lab. Can can you talk to us about the decision to do that and and how it sort of fed into you know your future founding of, of other companies? Yeah. So that's uh that's, it's an interesting question. Um, and again, you, we mentioned before timing is important during the, um, my time at molecular insight, we had run many different clinical trials at different institutions. And I, I happened to have two programs that were ongoing at Cornell, um, and New York hospital and, and actually had spent a lot of time with the team there. got to know a lot of the people in the geo oncology section, urology, neuroendocrine cancer, nuclear medicine. So I, I became very familiar with the team and, um, in the, in the context of, of, um, you know, selling MIP, it was, it was really, you know, what, what do I do next? What's the, what's the thing I, I, I wanted to do and where, where, where did I want to go? Um, and I had been approached by Cornell about whether or not I'd be, I would entertain going there and uh, and starting a lab. And I have to say that it wasn't it wasn't the initial first idea in my in my mind, but it was it, it became more and more attractive. Uh, I am a native New Yorker. I grew up there. I had left to go to graduate school, and in you know, and, and basically was away longer than I had been in New York. So it was a, an opportunity to go back to New York. It was an opportunity to work with people who I really had a lot of respect for. Uh, and we're doing translational work. I mean, so this is a, a unique opportunity, was a unique opportunity to get involved with people who are actually the clinical translators of a lot of the ideas that we had. We had actually brought different molecules to them. They were running clinical trials for us. Uh, so it was a, in, in my mind, it was, it was a nice way to incubate new ideas and, and bring new ideas to the clinic. So it was, you know, if you're going to go bench to bedside, you might as well be at the bench next to the bedside. And so um, it, it, it became very attractive on a lot of levels. And um, it also it also was a um, it, it was an opportunity to really contemplate the problems that we see in targeted radiotherapeutics. Right. Because if you look at it historically, without, I don't we don't have enough time on this podcast, but, you know, what's what's been successful, what's what's been near misses and how do you how do you really think about the problems that to make things successful, right? So if you look at, you know, Kohler and Milstein's work on 
monoclonal antibodies in 1980 or whatever the original, you know, and then and then what was the first time a drug got approved? And then what's happened since then? You look at all the ADC work that's fallen on the wayside and a couple of things. Get, you know, so every technology with promise also has lots of pitfalls, right? We don't, there's so much we don't know about how things work. And so it gave me an opportunity to really, really focus on that. And that was, uh, it was a huge um, gift, I think, to, to, to me personally, to have the opportunity to work with the people at Cornell and my chairman, uh, Dr. Min, uh, was, was really supportive and the rest of the team there was a great collaborator. So it was, it was really a, a, a good match for me. And then as, as things be, of course, as things started to really evolve and, and the technology looked really interesting, the itch to sort of put this back out into industry became really overwhelming and, and, uh, and, and things were changing. As Jack had mentioned, you know, the timing at Molecular Insight was off by, I don't know, maybe a decade. And, and now, now everybody was jumping into something that we had been very much instrumental in pioneering. So it became much more attractive to come back in and having a partner like Jack, and I'm not going to say nasty things about him. Like, <laughs> but, you know, I, it was a real opportunity to, to get, I would say like-minded and, you know, we have a lot of overlapping skills and a lot of non-overlapping skills. And it was, uh, it was, it was exciting to get back in. Yeah. And I think I want to touch a little bit more on the commercialization aspect. So, sure. you, you know, you have this work that you're doing in lab and and you think that the technology is ready to create a product. Um, you know, some of the things that are going on in the radio pharmaceutical space, talking about um, the use of alpha particles versus beta particles, um, you know, what emitter do you actually use? What, how did you make these considerations in terms of creating a product and, and not just, um, doing basic and, and clinical translational research in the lab. Um, so, so can you talk to us a little bit more technically about um, some of those decisions and, and how that plays into what this final, you know, uh, product that uh, you filed the IND for uh, is? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, one of the things that at least my personal opinion on this is that you don't, you don't know what you're going to do till you have all the data. And so, um, to be married to any isotope, I think, before you know the biology, before you understand what it looks like in humans, is, I think, I, I, I just don't, I just don't see how you can make those decisions. Um, you know, we are really about making the molecule uh, to optimize the delivery or isotope to the molecule. Now, everything, nothing will be perfect, right? And there'll be target in, in the case in the case of Noria, where we're going after PSMA. Uh, PSMA has wonderful expression in prostate cancers and uh, also has some expression in the gut and has some expression in the salivary glands and has some expression in the kidneys. So there's, there's, there's a price to pay in terms of therapeutic index, you know, just by the nature of the target you go after. So, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you already decided what isotope you're going to use, I mean, now you're stuck, right? So the, because some, some of those off target, um, well, they're, they're on target from the, the point of specificity of engagement of a, the, the target, but they're not cancer. And so when you have non-cancer expression, you have to really make that consideration of what are you going to do in order to implement a radiotherapy strategy? Because maybe alphas in that case are too potent and you'll start to damage the salivary glands of the kidneys, which is, which is the case with PSMA. And, and one of the things I just I'll give a shout out to another Hopkins colleague, right? So uh, part of the technology that we sold to Bayer included technology from uh, Barbara Slush's lab at, at Johns Hopkins, right? So we had a 
non-radioactive drug that was a prodrug that could block uptake in the salivary glands and the kidney, which would be a preemptive um, uh, protective strategy as we came in with an alpha in it. So there's, there's, you have to really look at the whole thing. It's not, again, I, I don't think you can just say I'm an alpha guy or I'm a beta guy or gal, uh, but it's, it's, it's a possible, you have to understand the ligand, where, where it goes, what's the biology. You're stuck with mice to begin with, but you have to quickly translate this with imaging studies in humans, which is what we're doing with the buyer arrangement. We're starting the imaging component of a study that will identify a candidate for therapy with alphas afterwards. So it's it really needs to be worked. You, you need to play the the full nine innings to understand where you're going to go at the end. I think. Yeah, I, I'll just add. I think you know to to John's point. First, you got to do the chemistry. Then you got to study the biology, and then you got to do the math to decide the physics. You know, that's kind of the order of operations. Uh, that's the really a, a big. I think what brings John and uh, and me together also is and is we've built a team that's very interdisciplinary. So um, of the we're still a small company, twenty or so people, but almost all PhDs, and and, and it it covers a broad spectrum of of interdisciplinary knowledge, and that's kind of the the excitement of bringing people together. Uh, and I think a lot of good ideas come out of people of different disciplines looking at problems differently and debating them. And, and this field is, it just, re, it just requires all those disciplines as, that we yeah. just listed. Uh, so it, it, it's, a, it's, it's a great field. Yeah. I think that makes for a really good working group, having those different backgrounds and, and ideas really boil over when, when you bring those types of people together. Um, let, let's talk about both of the technology platforms that you're developing. Uh, one of which is, uh, term Trillium, and the other is um, Macropa, uh, if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, can you tell us a bit about those two technologies and, and maybe how they differ or how they work together and um, and what really is their their role in promoting the development of, of these radiotherapeutics? Yeah, so so Trillium, Trillium is fundamentally the uh, PK modulation technology. So that's, that, that's the as you can imagine, the Trillium flower has three petals and it's a very, very pretty flower. If anyone hasn't looked at it, there's also a brewery uh, called Trillium Brewery in the Seaport area of Boston, uh, which is fortuitous because then we can buy a lot of tchotchkes there. That's the Trillium on them and everyone thinks we made them. But and drink some beer occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course, that's it. Um, and, and, that, and that's really was born out of this idea of trying to manipulate pharmacokinetics specifically, right? So some of the early work and it's published work where we where we played with albumin binding uh, motifs in a very small construct made it really difficult to change the albumin binding features of the molecule without changing the target binding feature of the molecule. So out of that was born the sort of let's separate these things in space uh, using a, a a sort of triangulated scaffold so that we can actually uh, move move them away from each other so they have less impact on each of the things we're trying to measure. Uh, they're, they're, it's never zero, just to be clear, right? So anything you do on a molecule has some impact on, on what you're doing. But they, they tend to be dampened when you when you push them further apart. They don't have as much of an impact. So in, in, some, in the case of, the, say, the PSMA ligands, we were able to make um, – maintain make a, a fairly large library of compounds with fairly different structures but still maintaining pretty much identical or similar 
uh, affinity for the target. But but we could change the PK dramatically, and of course we could change the key later. So, which I'll get to the macro part in a second. So you you, you really have the, a way of dialing in components in the, into the trillium structure, um, and 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 making sure that your the hitchhiking ride that you're taking on albumin is optimized, and the affinity is optimized for the target. Uh, and that the chelate is selected appropriately, right? So if you want to do copper, there are certain chelates that are good for copper, certain that are not particularly good. If you want to do actinium, uh, we would argue that macropa, which we'll get to now, is is the ideal chelate. And so macropa really is an actinium-specific chelate. While it does bind other metals, it, it is remarkable for actinium. And what's the importance of that? So actinium is a uh, roughly 10-day half-life alpha emitter. It has multiple alphas in its decay chain. Um, it's a it's a, a, a lanthanized, fairly large atom. You can get it into other chelates. you got to use sort of a lot of heat and hammer and tongs to get it in there. Uh, but this particular chelate can be attached to any molecule, a small molecule, a peptide, or an antibody, and will quantitatively label uh, actinium will incorporate actinium into those molecules at very low concentrations, you know, 10 to the minus 7 molar, and at room temperature at neutral pH. So it, it gives you sort of an ideal way of labeling molecules that may be sensitive uh, to two things. One is heat, um, and, and the other one is actual, the radiation itself. So in making a, a therapeutic radiopharmaceutical, you have some manufacturing issues, which is you're putting a a boatload of radioactivity into a into a vial that you want that radioactivity to attach to another molecule, which is now sensitive for the target and all the other features I just told you. Radiation is being used to destroy molecules, so when you actually make the molecule, you have to make sure that the process in which you put the molecule together to ship out for a patient, the molecule doesn't decompose. So there's lots of ph phenomena that there you can play around with that, but Macropaw makes it quite unique. Uh, and easy to incorporate actinium into a variety of molecules. And so that's our chelate technology for actinium. Um, I would also say that we're not married to actinium. We have lots, as I mentioned earlier, about you know making the right molecule. Some molecules, because of where they go, that we can't control completely, uh, we'll probably be better off with, with beta emitters such as lutetium or copper-67. Others will have too short a resonance time, so maybe actinium is too long an isotope. Maybe we want to use lead, which is shorter as an alpha emitter so we we're, we're, we we want to be we're agnostic um to the isotope but we're not agnostic to the outcome of the targeting vector yeah and you use the word tunable a lot and and how these are tunable approaches um i'm wondering if that's tunable from the standpoint of the molecule design or tunable from the standpoint of mathematical modeling or how those two play into each other so there, it's tunable from the point of view of chemistry, and it's tunable from the point of view of how what the affinity is to albumin. So we have a, I would say, about a two-log range of, of, of uh, affinities that we can play with just purely by changing one component of that molecule. And then, of course, that number gets put into, you know, these, these are typically in a micromolar range or, you know, high nanomolar, um, you know, double high double-digit micromolar and of course that that information gets put into the models and i'll i'll kick that over to jack but it's it's so it's both right it's tunable 
and it's used in corporation as a model so we can understand what's driving the optimal uh, delivery. Yeah, so I mean, albumin being so ubiquitous and blood, you, you got about a, you know, well, you, they won't, it's, it's audio, but you, you got about a, a good mug full of, of albumin flowing through you at all times. And, and right. so the albumin to, to compound ratio is, again, three, three orders of magnitude more albumin uh, in the bloodstream. And so you're, to John's point, it's, you can tune how much you're coming on and off of that albumin. And what that does is we, someone said surf, you're kind of surfing albumin uh, coming off and on it uh, over time. And this has dramatic impact on the blood PK uh, and thus bioavailability and, and then downstream uh, PK uh, uh, in the tumor environment and all, and the extra and all other organs for that matter, the extra, you know, ultimately in the end, radiopharmaceuticals are about tumor and the, excretion uh tumor another and and that ratio that we're trying to optimize and so it's just been it's we'll we'll, t we'll up tunable by say quantitatively tunable you can you can and it, we actually just got uh some some really good modeling put together this week uh and it's it's the empirical evidence driving the model driving the empirical you know that that driving the study design it's and it it's uh it, so far so good I, and i think if we take a longer perspective, the outlook is 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 very positive for what to do, and 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 also functional across a, a broad array of targets. But to John's point, everything has to come together. You know, you, you you it's it's we have to be agnostic going in. You have to be willing to figure out. You have to learn from the experiments and and then make decisions accordingly. But part of the part of the great aspect of this platform is compared to many drugs we've labeled and studied is. When that drug doesn't give you the PK you want, you're out of luck, and you gotta just move on to another peptide sequence or another antibody. Here, you literally have a class of compounds that um, you're optimizing each leg of the th of the three legged stool, and 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 can uh, see how things go accordingly. So it's 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 a great optimization problem. So um, Jack touched on something. He didn't. He didn't go down the hole, but I'll I'll go down there. And that is one of, one of the things that's unique about the space, and one of the things that we're trying to do early on is make sure we do the early kill studies, right? So mm -hmm. you know, we, as as Jack said, you know, if the molecule doesn't work, you go on to the next molecule. And one of the beauties of the space is that you can image these molecules in animals, and you can image them in people before you commit to the isotope, right? So we can get imaging data that actually reinforms us on on I get to go back and do the math to then say you know this this will be tolerable for an alpha emitter or it won't so not only does the molecule get uh selected that way but also the isotope gets selected right and if neither one of them is going to work then the then then we then we trash it and move on to the next thing so we have a a pretty rapid iterative process so that we don't waste a lot of time on on uh, a hopeful compound, so to speak. That idea of theranostics. Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So we get quote unquote pharmacodynamics uh, for free, uh, so to speak. You know, we 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 can calculate the pharmacodynamics from the pharmacokinetics. And to John's point, what, what what's great about this class of drug is it is, you know, 
easier to kill. You, you have the ultimate biomarker. You're actually imaging. In, in both John and I have, as many people have, and, and Hopkins is very famous for it. Uh, we do so many PKPD studies where we're trying to image some other biomarker using medical imaging, molecular imaging. And here, um, and that's, that is very successful. You see that the likelihood of a drug being uh, for propelling through progression goes up, honestly, threefold if you have a good biomarker strategy. That, that's the, that those are the, that's the, uh, the aggregate math that's published. And here it's, you have the ultimate biomarker. So it's on you to, to quantify, to, to evaluate how, how you're doing as you go. And you shouldn't be progressing drugs that are, are, ha have no future, um, where you're hoping that some downstream mechanism is going to, to rear its head in a large scale, um, efficacy study here, you know, you, you, you have a much better shot at goal. Yeah. That, that, that's an attractive um, additive for this space in particular. Uh, yeah. Jack, I, I had a question for you. So you had talked about how empirical evidence uh, feeds the modeling that then um, feeds back into the compound design. Do you think eventually you'd be able to develop enough empirical evidence for enough compounds that you could start to experiment de novo, maybe, maybe in silico um, in, in some of these interactions and, and how that might create sort of uh, like like a long term pipeline of data. Yeah, I would say we're we're well on our way. Uh, I would say we did that last week. Uh, the the physiological based pharmacokinetic modeling will certainly give you a good predictive PK, um, and so you can tune you can actually tune mathematically the binding affinity forecast predict in this case via partial differential equations what will be. The, the blood PK, and then from that, try to uh, literally, the, and then the tumor accumulation PK, it models the expected uh, residence time and area under the curve, you know, the, the full time activity curve for the tumor, which then, as we discussed, you can calculate the imparted or absorbed dose that you could deliver to the tumor. So we're there. I mean, like we, we this, this is already, we'll already start driving our decisions as to getting rid of arena you know parameter regimes that are not going to lead to success that's the key here you still i mean <laughs> data drives all decisions but mm -hmm. to, just to make sure you're not we saw a lot of people it's very easy in an it's very easy to radio label a drug and see absolutely nothing of what you want to see mm -hmm. um that is a that i can tell you that's a, that's an easy experiment to run you're it's very easy to be the wrong mass dose the wrong model the wrong everything that that we see that accomplished with great frequency um, unfortunately, so it, you know, you, it's about being in the right regime. And I think that's kind of what brings us together to work on this. Yeah. It's chipping away at the compound space to, to find, you know, the realm where you should be working in. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, exactly. well stated. Yeah, where you shouldn't be, it's, it's an important to know where not to be. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Then on arrival is what we <laughs> use often. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm interested in how the specific partnerships that you've made play into uh, your, your success and, um, and and how that's going to drive success in, in the clinic? Sure. I, I think that um, partnerships, the key to successful enterprises, uh, you know, they can be the hardest, the biggest challenge. It's, it's easier said than done to have good partners. Um, and, and partnership is successful only when both people benefit ultimately. And uh, I, I think we've been Blessed to have two good partnerships out the gate, um, and Bayer and Lantheus and Bayer, uh, working around the PSMA portfolio that 
came out of Cornell and Noria and Hopkins uh, to to uh, Barbara's a tremendous uh, c- contributor. Um, and also with Lantius, we've done a deal where we've outlicensed the diagnostic rights to our um, our FAP, our fibroblast activation uh, protein platform. So that, uh, and we will continue to do that. To be open, um, you know, it's a we're a very small company. Um, we're growing, but our, our clearly our core competency, or I hope it was clear, our, is in is in discovery and early stage development. And it's it's a it's a bold sentiment. We. We would like to run that we're in for the long haul we want to run this company through to um commercial success uh but one can't do that on their own of their own accord for this type of of product and so it's really about those are two formal partners but we also have a lot of other great partnerships in uh strategic research collaborations uh you know um manufacturing partnerships so it's you you it, it is especially in the you know in all fields but especially in this field uh, partnership is, I don't know how crucial it is in, in law firms all the time, but in this type of business, uh, it is the essence of, of it's, it's beyond required. And just to close out, I'm, I'm wondering what, you know, if you could impart some advice on, on, uh, if a student's interested in the radiotherapy space, what, what sorts of knowledge or expertise might be required from a PhD to work in this space? And mm-hmm. uh, if you have any other insights into, you know, how students can become, you know, more uh, aware of of how to found companies and and in your experience what what uh helped you along the way john when you take the the first part i'll take the second part yeah give me the hard part um <laughs> so i i think i think we th- you think about targeted radiotherapy now as jack alluded to earlier you know it is a multidisciplinary uh, game it's it's really hard it's really hard to s- Again, it depends where you're coming from, right? So, it, 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 you, I think you mentioned to us at the outset that you're involved in immunology. Um, you know, one of the exciting areas right now of of targeted radiotherapeutics is is how can it complement immunotherapeutics uh, or the IO space? And one one concept uh, is that in in treating cancers with radiation, that you might actually stimulate the immune system or at least provide the immune system. Uh, a series of antigenic components, right? Whether it's, you know, uh, the, the way the cells die, if they go into a, a sort of immunological death spiral or whether or not they fragment their DNA, what, you know, what, what are, what are the factors, um, that, uh, that are, are involved with stimulating the immune system? So there's, uh, uh, several colleagues of mine back in Cornell as um dr fermenti's laboratory in radiation oncology sandra di maria claire van Puy, uh, it, they've been looking at the interplay between radiation and the immune system uh and so i, I think there's there's lots of opportunity on on, on my side I, I was more involved in pharmaceutical sciences and then radiochemistry i've come at it from that side and obviously jack's coming from the math side so depending on where you are as a student you could get involved in different aspects and then and then cross over. Um, but right now, I think the immuno-oncology interface with radiation therapy is hot a hot space. I think um, getting involved in drug design in this space right now, there's so many companies popping up, uh, is, is really, uh, you know, there, there's lots of opportunity from the chemistry to physics to, to medicine to uh, biology. Yeah, I... Um, I John hit the nail on the head, and I'll, I'll 
conveniently transition that into starting entrepreneurship, so to speak, and 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 brewing entrepreneurship in the PhD and postdoc and junior faculty ranks. And I think that uh, it's kind of this. I'd give the same answer for both. It, in the sense of one thing for sure, if you want to get into targeted radiotherapy or anything, or I think in the PhD level, really get your core competency down, really understand a discipline extremely well. Right. That will always serve you. You can always learn other disciplines, but you, if you don't have one under your belt, it's pretty hard. I think it's always nice to have something to call back on uh, and have a, I was joking. Um, uh, as a mathematician, you always got to be able to, solve for X and find a maximum. You'll always have a job if you do. X could be infinite dimensional and the maximum could be, it can be very complicated, but you have to have that core competency and then you can go from there. With regards to starting a business, I'd say that, you know, a lot of times there's entrepreneurship classes and universities are trying to push entrepreneurship. I'd say you just have to make sure if someone wants to buy the product or service that you're you're starting. Uh, cool is not, coolness and excitingness does not necessarily translate to successful business. So really getting advice. We've had, we have great mentors to this day uh, all the time. We're always seeking advice and, and looking for critical, truly critical feedback on our, our thought process. So make sure you're well vetted, you have, and, and you're fully committed, but having that core competency to draw back on is always, I think uh, it's, it's, it's not, um, it's not for the faint-hearted starting companies, no. and um, so you—if you don't have a little bit of a core—it doesn't always go great. And I, I would I would just add to that that uh, it's not—it's not like you starting a company is like going on uh, you know a walk through Grand Canyon, right? You, you know, hey, I want to do that. Sounds like a good idea. Let me check my bucket lists. You know, other people's money's involved. Other people's lives are involved. It's not. It's not. It's a very serious thing to get involved with, and uh, and and as you probably know, a lot of things wash up pretty quickly, right? So uh, people put their own money in, they get their family to put their money in, and they lose all their money. So it's it's this is this is it needs to think through it and get some some I would say gray haired uh, input, and I don't mean it to be gray in particular, but just some people have done these things to help vet an idea versus a. You know, a lot of people want to own a restaurant because they can cook themselves breakfast and they a lot of restaurants go out of business in the first year so you got to make sure that you've you've planned way ahead of and and you have options right you have technological options you've got financing options it's not a it's not a simple story yeah I think the idea of seeking mentorship really resonates and and that's you know really super key um, Jack and John thank you so much for joining me today and talking about ratio therapeutics and their proprietary platforms and really the field of radiotherapy today and and how I, I think it'll be very impactful in the future. So best of luck and all your success. Thanks, Joe. Nice Thanks for doing this. It was great meeting you. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Joe Varielli. Thank you for listening.